I'll be reading from Acts chapter 7, verses 17 through 53. So if you would turn with me there. But, oh yeah, and please stand. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> but at the same time of the, of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And this retort, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac of Jacob and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to, um, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this, Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, who do, we did not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malik and the star of your God, Rephan the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they 
dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which the prophets did the, your fathers, which, the, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And Jonathan, thank you very much, brother. You're a great leader, and we thank God for you, for leading for the Lord Jesus' sake. I suppose one of the many differences between being a Christian and being a secular materialist is that the Christian believes in a, what we could call a transnational history, a transhistorical history. That we can say all things in the history of the world are moving to a very specific point. Uh, that there's purpose imbued in the universe. That when we are, you know, are cradled under our creator, that we can say there's meaning in life and we're going to a certain place. And if you think about that, say that's uh, precisely what uh, a materialist cannot have. That I suppose a materialist can lay claims to this in things like globalization or a, a trans world order that we see not really holding together, but it rightfully belongs to the people of God to say that there's a, a destination and a task at hand that's beyond any of ourselves or the time and place we, in which we live. So again, you have the view that you've emerged from a primordial soup, uh, then your meaning in life can only come from what you uh, declare it to be in and of yourself, that you make it up yourself. Uh, rather, a Christian has that from the outside that we're a part of a grand story. Now, why do I begin that way? Uh, we have enjoyed the last nine months in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And we spent that time because some people, I think incorrectly, uh, think of the Hebrew Bible, the first, you know, three quarters of the Bible say it's very intimidating. Uh, it happened a long time ago. It's confusing. It doesn't have anything to do with me. And we've tried. We've, we've been at pains, right, in a good way that we've uh, sat under the word of God in an effort to say there's no more appropriate story for our church and us as the people of God. That Exodus lays the groundwork of the grand story of history. Uh, so if you remember back, say, what is the one story of the Bible? That in the first couple pages of the Bible, we, say, we learn that humans are made in the image of God, that we're made to steward the earth in which God has entrusted us. We're made to be representatives of the true king. And yet all of us in our own way, uh, from our first parents, have done life on our own terms. That inside our hearts, uh, like the bad shopping cart, that giant eagle that swerves away because of the bad wheel, each one of us kind of goes off the tracks and says, I want to do life on my own terms. I'd rather not be thinking about God or, or doing his work. That we, we say we've all been polluted uh, by this rebellion and this sin. But God in his kindness recognizes that despite the recklessness of human beings, that he's redeeming a people for himself. That he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call back a group to myself, my chosen people, and I'm going to have a relationship with them 
in such a way that all the nations of the world might be blessed. That this promise comes early on to a man named Abraham. Abraham, through no achievement of his own, he wasn't the best looking, he wasn't the most accomplished, God chose that Abraham from your seed, we're going to raise up a people, and there are going to be so many of them, they're going to be vaster than the stars of heaven, and the way that I'm going to relate to that people is going to bless everybody, the chosen people of God. Now, Exodus, the story of Exodus, makes this abundantly clear that God has followed through on his promise, and he's defining this people. So I'm going to be uh, today a little bit of an unusual message, but it'll be uh, throughout Exodus and other places as well. But I want to take us back to the beginning of Exodus and listen to this, Exodus 2 and verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, that is Pharaoh, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's as if God had forgotten his promise. You said you were going to multiply us and allow us to prosper and bring us into a promised land. And here we are, downtrodden people of the Egyptians. God, what are you doing? They cried to God to rescue them from slavery. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You remember that line at the beginning of Exodus? The Bible's one story. God sees his people and says, I'm still working my purposes. I made a promise to you, and I'm going to bring you through and establish you. So from the very beginning to the very be the end, God is calling a people to himself so that in our relationship with him, all the nations of the earth might be blessed. So what are the moves today? I'll call this like a, you know, a bonus episode on Exodus. We forgetish the, the narrative. But I, firstly, I want to show us how Exodus is the defining story for the people of God. Secondly, I want to show us how Jesus fulfills every major event in the historical narrative of Exodus. And last, I want to say, what in the world does this have to do with Providence Church? So those are the moves we make. So first point, the story of the Exodus becomes the very identity marker of God's people. It's who they are. See, before they're not a people, that they're scattered and they're enslaved, and what happens is God pulls them through the Red Sea. Uh, when there was no way, he goes down and gets them, right? Remember that wonderful line in, in, in uh, Exit where they're hemmed in, there's no way out, they're kind of bogged down in themselves. God reaches down and he pulls them through the sea and then we say, well, all of a sudden they're a people, they're a congregation. The first time that that's used, you're the people of God now. So it's a reminder, the Exodus event of who God's people are. So take, uh, for example, in Exodus 33, remember this line. Moses says to God, what differentiates us, God, is you're going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. That there was a recognition among Israel that they were the redeemed people of God. That's who they were. I ask you, in today's world, isn't this a great crisis? I mean, it's amazing how so much of our debates now are on what we, we loosely term identity politics. Everybody's very confused about it. Everyone longs for an identity, to be a part of a group, to be a part of a group with meaning. Say, everybody's longing for that, and just in very scrambled ways, who are we? Say, are we the ones tossed around by the, the waves of the culture? Or am I this? Am I defined by cosmetic, outwardly things, things that I can change? Or are we, and I would contend this, we're the redeemed people of God. That's who you are. Remember who you are. You're bearing witness to him that we've been bought back. 
And so this narrative becomes embedded, embedded in who Israel is and who the people of God are so that they don't forget in crazy mixed up times where everybody's doing their own thing uh, to their own detriment. So think about how this is used. Let's move forward a bit. Let's say in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms are the book in the Bible. If you just open, you learn this in Sunday school, but if you plop your Bible down on the binding and open in the middle, you'll get to a book called the Psalms. There are 150 songs that there are songs that the Israelites would sing, and they say they come together. Why do we sing? You ever ask that? Say, well, you know, Pastor Jim's got a great voice. I love the instruments. It's all very nice. Say, why do the people of God sing? To reinforce who we are, who we belong to in a world that's so messed up on identity. We are those who belong to God, who've been redeemed by God, the same in Israel. So take, for example, how often Exodus comes up. Exodus 106 and verse 7 in your notes. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, that is God. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast covenant love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Can you see why that would be a great thing to sing in the church? Remember how great God is? How much he loves his people? How faithful and gracious he is? And even when we act selfishly and that we commit acts of idolatry, that we are those who belong to God. And oh, by the way, why did he do this? For his name's sake, that we may make known his power and his grace to the world. They don't the world need to hear that message today. That you can belong to God. That your life can be a part of this grand overarching narrative. So Psalm 78, Psalm 95. You read the Psalms, Israel's reminding themselves, we're those who were bought back, who were brought through the sea and established by God. We belong to him, that's who we are. How about the prophets? Hey, not just in the historical narrative, not just in the hymn book of Israel, but how about Isaiah? Say one of the four great prophets, you know, um, Isaiah 40 to 55, that section is some of the best theology, I think, in all the Bible. And uh, you'll, you can just see as you read that how often Exodus comes up. So, for example, Exodus 43 and verse 16, right? That we, we're told, Isaiah declares, that, remember the Lord, he's the one who makes the way in the sea. It's a direct reference to Exodus. You're in a tough spot today. You think there's no way out. You're listening to all the knuckleheads out there. Say, so do you remember? You're under the authority of the God who makes a way in the sea. That's who you are. He looks out for you. His steadfast love prevails for you. And we as a church family commit ourselves each week, and I hope throughout the week, coming together, reinforcing our identity as being defined above anything else as those who've been bought back by a God who's using us to praise his name, make known his wonders, and make known his grace. Which brings us to Acts 7, which was the passage that was read by Jonathan. So what is Acts 7? Now we're fast-forwarding. Sorry today, you'll, you'll be uh, gracious to me today. Unusual message, as I said. We're going to fast-forward, say, something like 1,450 years. Acts is the first book of church history. And Stephen is known as being the first martyr of the faith. We might say John the Baptist, but Stephen is pretty much at the top of the list. And what's happening is Stephen 
is in a debate with his, uh, the Jewish experts on the law. And in Acts 7, Stephen lays out an entire, we could say, Israelite history. That we didn't read the first part of it, but he starts with Abraham, and 70% of his revision, if you will, his summary of the Hebrew Bible, comes from a retelling of Exodus. And he's walking these Jewish experts into the law as to what the Bible really means. And as you heard that read today, I'll just make three points. It's, it's quite a speech indeed. But what is, Peter, excuse me, what is Stephen really saying here to his Jewish friends? We can't miss. The first thing that this speech does is it links Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. He says, fellas, can't you remember back right at the beginning of our Bibles when God tells Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, that he's going to make a great nation for himself? And don't you remember how this was worked out through the wonderful deeds of Moses and even though that we made an idol and we did our own thing, that God's gracious fulfilling of his covenant went through any, any way? And all this, don't we know, fellas, points forward to whom he calls the righteous one in verse 52 that it all points towards Jesus. That Stephen's saying, all the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is one story. God's buying back a people for himself, and all the stuff in the narrative of Exodus is a giant signpost to the person of Jesus. So Stephen's speech from a man, a Jewish man, links the Bible as one story. Secondly, how about verse 53 of Acts 7? You say, how about a gutsy, this is a gutsy oration. Say, so think of what he's saying here. Guys, you've been sitting under the Hebrew Bible your whole lives. You've received the law given from heaven by the angels, right? It comes down from on high, yet you're not keeping it. It must have stunned them. They spent their whole lives making rules to protect rules. They, they were fantastic at policing everybody, that they were scrupulous in the way that they presented themselves, they, they were arrayed finely, that their whole lives were devoted to keeping the law. And Stephen says, guys, you've missed it. You've missed the point of what God is doing. It's not about the rules as if we can kind of, you know, as long as we're obeying. Say, no, it's about God's cosmic plan of redeeming a people to himself that he might be glorified and that we might win for his sake as many as possible. Because really, why did they miss the law? That's the third point. I think it comes in verse 35 and again in verse 52, that they miss it because they miss that it's about Jesus. So 35, this Moses whom you've rejected, who they rejected in Exodus, whom God made ruler and judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now, there's strong overtones there, right? Because it's Jesus is the one who sent his ruler and judge. So what Stephen's saying is something like this. We, our forefathers, rejected Moses as God's instrument, and that was a huge mistake. Can't you see that rejecting Jesus now is an even greater mistake? That God sent him as ruler and judge, and we're repeating our same mistakes, the ones that we read about in Exodus. Come on here. The whole thing is about Jesus. So the point I've tried to, to make here is that the Exodus story of God redeeming a people out of sin and idolatry in themselves when they had no way out becomes the defining characteristic of who God's people are. And I hope that's true again for our church. 
in a time where so many are so terribly confused and so terribly scared and quite frankly harming, <laughs> harming themselves in unthinkable ways. Ah, one of my many prayers for our church is that we're not confused by this one bit. We're those who've been bought back by a gracious God who's established us for his glory to proclaim his grace so that many others might come into a saving relationship with Jesus and might have this grand purpose in all history, marking, marching towards the celestial city. So point one, the Exodus defines the people of God. It's, their, it's who they are. Now, this next point, you'll have to bear with me because I rarely do this. There are going to be a few charts, you okay? I'm a church historian. I don't get to use a lot of charts, but here you go. It's point number two, Jesus fulfills the role of Israel and Moses. So let's take a look here. I just want you to look at the bold on the far left of the screen. The bold on the far left of the screen, I think we could agree, would be if you did a, you know, 10th grade English, you read Exodus and then say, give me some bullet points about what Exodus is about. That's the far left column. Let, you know, remember, and then there you have the chapters in Exodus. So let's, let's think back where we've been the last nine months. How does the story start? The Israelites are down in Egypt and they're becoming too numerous. And Pharaoh is a bit intimidated by them, so he sends out an edict to kill, right? Remember, he sends it out, tells the midwives to kill the baby boys. One of those baby boys was who would be Moses. Moses' parents, in an act of faith, put him, they float him down the Nile. Very interesting. It's in a way to send him down into Egypt, where Moses is scooped up by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, that he's rescued by the Egyptian elite. After that, you've got a very interesting line in Exodus 4.22 where Israel is called God's son. Skipping forward to another prophet, Hosea. Hosea 11.1 1 says, Out of Israel I call my son. The son there again, a reference to corporate Israel. Okay, then there are the judgments. Really, Exodus 6 through, uh, you know, chapter 12 is the Passover. You get to Exodus 14, which is the great episode I've already talked about a bit today, where God brings them through the Red Sea and establishes them as a group of people, right? That they're brought through the water. When they're brought through a water, then they're a people. That's where they're kind of first a people. They're to set out on their mission. Then what happens? Israel is tempted in the desert, that uh, God, you remember this is the part where they're grumbling and complaining that God's not there for them. And what happens? God provides manna from heaven and water from the rock. So they're tempted in the desert. After the temptations, Moses goes up Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, where he receives God's law, which is a gift of God's grace to shape his people, to mold them into mature followers of him. And then the last half of Exodus is dominated by this idea of the tabernacle or the temple, which is the special intersection. We define it as the place where God's going to really dwell among his people. He's going to work among them in a way that he's not working among non-believers, that God's people are where he's at work. Okay, would you all agree? So uh, basic bullet points, last nine months, those are the main themes. That's what happens in the story of Exodus. Now let's look at the right column. What is Matthew? Matthew is a Greco-Roman biography of Jesus. It was written by somebody who knew Jesus really well. Uh, so we, again, there are about 1,450 years that separate Exodus from Matthew. Now, maybe it's been a while since you read the first seven chapters of Matthew, but just think with me, and maybe it'll jog your memory. What happens at the beginning of Matthew? Herod 
is a bit jealous that there's rumblings of a new coming king. He sends out an edict to kill all the baby boys. Through a dream to Joseph, Jesus' father, they go down into Egypt, where they flee for refuge. Then, interestingly, Matthew 2.15 cites Hosea 11.1, saying, Out of Egypt I call my son. Only here the son is not corporate Israel, here the son is the person of Jesus. Then, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. You ever think about, why, why, would, why was Jesus baptized? If you read Mark's gospel, we learn that, that John is baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Jesus is sinless. He didn't need to have his sins for Why would Jesus be baptized? Matthew helps us out and tells us that Jesus did this to fulfill all righteousness. That in other words, Jesus did this to show to us that this is all one plan, that God's one plan is to redeem a people to himself, and it's all pointing towards the person of Jesus. So just as corporate Israel passes through the waters and is established as the people of God, so Jesus, identifying with his people, goes under the water, comes out, and starts his ministry. Can you see direct parallel? Then what happens? Just like Israel, out into the desert, tempted, grumbling and complaining, they don't pass the tests, Jesus is tempted three times in the desert, and he passes the test. Where God's people are unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. You see where it goes then. What happens in Matthew 5? Jesus gets up on a mountain and starts talking about the Ten Commandments and gives the law to the people that they might be shaped into his followers. The exact parallel to Exodus. And then to cap this part of things, you say Matthew starts and ends, Matthew 1.23 and Matthew 28.20. Say, what is in Matthew 1.23? Jesus shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And the last lines of Matthew's gospel, 28 and verse 20, I will be with you always. Right in the middle of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12 and verse 6, we learn that Jesus is greater than the temple. Now I ask you, what do you think about that? Say, we've all agreed, I hope, that the left side is the basic narrative of the book of Exodus, as documented by Moses in history. Then you have a Greco-Roman biography of Jesus saying, you know what, this man fulfilled every one of those themes. And where God's people had failed, Jesus succeeded in a grander and more cosmic, and shall we say, perfect way. That all of Exodus is a signpost to Jesus, that there's one story, God redeeming a people for himself. As Paul says, that we get the shadows in the Old Testament, that the New Testament is the old, in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament in the New Testament is revealed. It's a perfect outworking of that. Say, all this is a direct signpost to God's coming king who's going to consolidate his people. So Jesus fulfills the role of Moses and Israel. Can I give you one more chart? I'll be quicker here. All right, you say, well, that's Matthew. That's, you know, one, one person who knew Jesus. Are there others? Say, yeah, there are others. All kinds of themes in Exodus point towards Jesus. I'll remind you of just one. You remember what happens in Exodus 3? Moses is commissioned, and he's not a great speaker. Uh, he's he's uh, got no persuasive power. And he said, well, how, you know, this is quite impossible. You're going to bring us out of Egypt, and we're enslaved. How's this going to happen, God? Uh, and if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush as I am, the self-existent one. I fast forward again 1,450 years to John's gospel. John is another Greco-Roman biography of Jesus. He witnessed this conversation. Jesus is talking to other religious people at his time. Here's what he says. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Wait a second. Abraham lived 2,200 years before Jesus. How could he have known about Jesus? But that's what he says. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to Jesus, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They get really mad at this. Why are they really mad? Because they all know Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is Sunday School 101. God reveals himself as I am. Now there's a Galilean carpenter on the scene who says that he's the great I am. It's a signpost, it's a shadow, and it's a type in Exodus to point to a greater leader than Moses and not just God in a burning bush, but God in the flesh and the person of Jesus. How about a few others here? Look down the left side. I won't go into great detail. You remember when we were going over tabernacle dimensions and you walk in to the holy place and on the one side of the holy place is the table of the bread of presence and on the other side there's a menorah that's constantly lit and it's a reminder that God is provider and that God is light. He provides light and guidance and vigilance and that God provides food for us. Say, think about those. What does Jesus say? I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Can you see how even the ornamentation in the tabernacle that speaks about the truth of God is fulfilled in the person and work and ministry of Jesus? Priests, sacrifices, temple. What does Hebrews 8 and 9 say? We don't need priests anymore sacrificing animals in the church lobby. You know, a day of atonement where I go into some tent back there with a bell on my ankle. Say, we don't need that. Why? Because we have Jesus, who's the great high priest. We don't need sacrifices because he is the sacrifice, that he's the one who's been hung on the cross. We don't need to make atonement. He's done it. He's completed it. What about the temple? Well, he is the temple. He's the special interface of God and his people. What about God's glory? Is it in the cloud and the pillar and the fire by night? No, it's been the veils come off when we're redeemed by Jesus and his spirit indwells us. What about that great theme we looked at two weeks ago? The justice of God and the grace of God that he judges Pharaoh for his murderous behavior, and yet he deals graciously with sinners. How do these two things hold together? Justice and mercy. You say, enter the cross of Christ. God takes sin seriously, but it comes to his people as a gift of grace. That it all points, friends, please. The Old Testament is not a confusing old book that's irrelevant. It's a giant signpost it's an outworking of God's one redemption plan. Come to Jesus. You say, look at the way the world is. Is that the way we're supposed? No, no, come to, repent of your sin. Be in his people. Be in this great work. And you remember how Exodus ends, right? Outward looking. God's people move out because he's with them. So points we've made. We're a redeemed people. That's who we are. We don't get down in identity politics. 
We're those who belong to God. He's done a work in our life. We're the ones in whom God is at work. That's who we are, friends, and we remind ourselves of that week in and week out. Secondly, the Hebrew Bible could not be more clear, right, in being a signpost to this coming king who fulfills all those themes where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded, and we're covered by him, which brings us then, finally, to where we are in this grand redemption story. We sit here today, say there's a great play unfolding, and by God's kindness and privilege, say we're in the play, <laughs> that we're in that covenant community of God. And I've said this a few times, but think with me once more. Think about an Israelite in Exodus chapter 40. Say, there he is, you know, the glory of the God is in the pillar. And think about a, a member of Providence Church. Think about how similarly they might talk. So first, think of the, uh, the uh, Israelite might say something like this. We were enslaved in Egypt. There was no way out. We were in a bad place. Things were getting worse and worse. We were all bogged down in our own sin, that we were at temptations of compromising with the culture. And yet God in his kindness, when it seemed that there was no way out, brought us through. And he established us in a way that only he could. And then he began to shape us through his law. He began to mold us into the people he wanted us to be. And then he said he'd promise his special presence among us so that we wouldn't need to be alone as we do his work on our way to the promised land. How would a member of Providence Church speak? I, prayerfully, you're converted as a child, but say an adult convert would say something like this. I was in a bad place. I was doing life on my own terms. I was scared. I was enslaved. I tried all the self-help stuff. I did the 10 steps to a better life. It wasn't working. But God reached down into my life and gave me a new heart that he opened my eyes to the wonder and glory of Jesus, that he turned my life of death into, into a real life, that he rescued me. And then you know what happened? He began to mold me and shape me and mature me into, a, again, a, a, a better follower of his by his work in my life. And he's promised by his spirit to be in me and working through me as I do his work on the way to the promised land. The Bible's one story. Say, we're in that story, Providence Church. Exodus 19, I'm going to raise up a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, so that all the world might know me. 1 Peter 2, I'm going to raise you, the church, our kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a chosen people, so that we might make his glory known. A few closing thoughts, uh, some applications here. We think a lot about individual witness, which I think is fine. In other words, we're going to go our various places this week and, you know, be isolated from one another in, in our workplaces. And we say we want to represent Jesus certainly uh, as individuals. But I think we could do a lot more work thinking, starting to think more about the collective witness of our church. Quite frankly, I'm very glad. I don't want anybody's full impression of Jesus to be just knowing me. <laughs> there are way too many chinks, and you can talk to Mallory about that at length, uh, about my flaws. But think about maybe the collective witness of a healthy church. We love each other, build each other up in truth, have a solid identity in Jesus. Say, we do that. Say, it's a powerful collective witness because we're the redeemed people of God doing his work. 
you know, you're not a Christian today. I was reading this week some political philosophy, you know, Hobbes and the Leviathan. There's a famous line. You probably know it from way back, but Hobbes says this, life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. See, I think of far too many young materialists are recognizing that that point lands a little too close to home. Say, so you throw God out and you look out at our prospects in this world. It's lonely. We feel poor. Say, so it's brutish and violent. And how much time do I really have? And maybe you feel that way today. Say, so I hope nothing else. You see, there's a grand story that God's working and that you can repent of doing life on your own terms and come to Jesus, come to the Father through Jesus and play a part in this great story and be a part of a loving church family. I invite you to think about that this week. Talk to me or one of the others. It's the most important thing in all the world. And for the Christian, you think of Hobbes's solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, in short. Think how different for the Christian. Say, life's not solitary. I have a church family that I've been brought into a group of brothers and sisters. I'm not poor. Say, yeah, we have different degrees of wealth, but compared to the inheritance, the imperishable inheritance we have in Christ, say, we're very rich people. Life's not nasty. That we deal in love and charity and kindness and emptying ourselves. We are not brutish and violent, but we are kind. That when we are struck, we have open arms, and life is not short, but rather that we have eternity with our King. Church family, take heart in this. Take heart that you're a part of this grand redemption story and that nothing can stop God's plan. And that's where I'll end, just four quick applications from the entirety of the book of Exodus, if I may. Firstly, God's plan goes forward no matter what. Whatever you make of human recklessness and bad politicians and a bad economy, say all that's kind of there in Exodus, say, guess what? God's going to work his action, and we're to be faithful under him. God's plan goes forward. May that be a comfort to you. Secondly, God's with his people when they suffer. Their life was quite miserable for the Israelites uh, many times in our story, and yet God's never absent. He's there walking them through whatever you're facing today, say chronic pain or feeling intimidated. God is with you and he will guide you. Thirdly, God is a God of justice and grace. He's going to settle all the scores. As much as we'd like to get in there and say, I'd like to punish this person and vindicate this person, and say, God's going to handle all that. Of course, we want to do our part here, but God's going to settle the score. And wonderfully, he comes to the sinner graciously and with the offer of forgiveness and grace through Jesus. Lastly, friends, as he was with Israel in the tabernacle and the pillar and cloud of fire, so he's with us now by the indwelling of his spirit. And we as a church will go forward as we surrender to him, that we honor Jesus and lift him up. And I pray that you too would feel excited and comforted by the great joy we have to be the church and to be God's ambassadors during this time. With that, I'll pray, and then we'll go into the time of communion. Father, we thank you for this book of Exodus and uh, that where to see when your people had no way out, that you rescued them, established them, and even as we continue to sin, that you lift us up and edify us. May this be a great note of hope as we end.
Lord, for this church, help us to see not as a kind of, you know, just an isolated thing off floating around, but no, there's a grand stream from the very beginning that you'll multiply the people, that we might have a relationship with you, that all the nations might know you. And we begin with those in our very midst, that we would be strong in your grace and strong in love as we would be the manifold witness of your glory. And so, Father, commit this time to you. Build up your church as you would have it, for Christ's sake. Amen.